131, and we'll continue in our study. Uh, looking at this, uh, 131 through 33 is kind of setting the stage for uh, our entire Christmas series. Uh, just really using this conversation, this understanding of who Jesus is going to be, as kind of the backdrop for kind of reading through the lens of the rest of the book of Luke. Um, you know, I was trying to balance how to figure out, okay, I, I want everybody to read through the Gospel of Luke this uh, December, but also at the same time have a Christmassy feel to, to things. And so this is, uh, this is my solution. So if you're wondering, you know, what is it that Jordan's doing? Well, I'm wondering the same. Um, but uh, this is our attempt at having a sort of a Christmas sermon series, walking through the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we kind of bounced uh, around uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, this morning, we're really just going to be kind of hanging out in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, our encouragement uh, today is to really see Jesus as the Son of God, Son of the Most High. And the sort of implications of what that means for us in terms of our priority, in terms of our service, in terms of our dedication. What is it that we are dedicating ourselves to? What is it that we, um, who is it that we trust in for our life? And so as we kind of dig in, I want to just take a moment to pray and we'll get into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Uh, for each of us. Thank you that uh, through your love you have sent your son uh, to reconcile us to you, to have a uh, relationship with you. And as we dive into uh, the gospel of Luke, help us, help us God to see uh, your grace and your love and who your son truly is. Uh, Lord, break through, um, break through the uh, just the onslaught of messages and pressures and uh, things, God, that just busy and hurry our minds, distract us from you. And God, would you just speak to us today through your word, through your spirit, and draw us closer to you. Uh, God, we love you and we need you, and we thank you for your love and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I really wanted to avoid a history lesson because um, I, I fell asleep in every history class I ever sat in, um, and I don't know if you're like me or that, uh, like that. Others really love history lessons and all of that, and and uh, I just always, I, I always had a hard time because people, the way they taught us, like, well, we study history so we don't repeat it. But then they say history repeats itself. And so it's like, well, so what did all this studying do for us other than to show us that we are not very good at learning? Um, that's how I've always felt about it. And uh, I'm right, and you'll never convince me I'm wrong, right? Uh, that's also part of history. Um, but there, uh, there was, before, um, uh, before the Roman Empire was the Roman Empire, there was Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar um, was one that came into power and influence through maneuvering, manipulation under great pressure, uh, and he uh, was surrounded by people who wanted to kill him, and they did. And uh, so, but he reconciled, and or not reconciled, but he consolidated power in such a way 
that in his life posthumously they looked back and they deified him. They called him a god. In his will, he wrote uh, that he wanted someone uh, to be adopted into his family, and it was someone who was close to him. Uh, he was technically like his great nephew, and his name was Octavius. And when Octavius came into power, he became one of the first rulers of the Roman Empire. And his first act and his first decree, Octavius's, was to issue a decree that a census needed to be taken. His name became Augustus. Augustus that we read of in Luke 2 is the son, quote-unquote son, of Julius Caesar. When they look back at Julius Caesar, they deify him as a god. And there is a then, not too far removed then, his adoptive, adopted son Augustus became known as a son of God. And so I think, I think, in some part, the reason why Luke 2 starts with, in the days of Caesar Augustus, he issued a decree. The, uh, how does the rest go for me, uh, Rich? Uh, uh, the uh, the reason why I think in part we have Caesar Augustus in Luke two is it's a historical placeholder. We need to situate Jesus in the historical moment that truly existed. Jesus of Nazareth truly lived, and we get this as a placeholder, so we know kind of where we're at in the world history. But I also think Luke is doing something. I think Luke is helping us see who the real Son of God is. I think Luke places Augustus there, and Augustus, he does what emperors who are powerful and mighty, who are great rulers, who have great influence, who at the swipe of a pen can upend an entire region and say, okay, now you all have to go to your hometown, and we're going to take a census. It, your, your wife's pregnant, that doesn't matter. The census is what needs to happen. Now, Augustus wasn't actually, from what I was reading, I, I didn't pay attention in history class, so I had to actually like, do a little reading uh, this week and kind of learn. He wasn't actually that bad of a guy. I think that the census was a part of his sort of attempt to help care for the poor. He was known for caring for the poor. He was deified for a reason. It was mostly propaganda. It was mostly, let's give our devotion and worship and allegiance to this mighty, powerful figure, and things will go well for you. I can remember walking the streets of Cuba, and under the dictatorship of Fidel Castro, it said, everything is good in Spanish. Can any of my Spanish friends translate that for me? It was muy bien. It was all, all, it's all good and uh, all very good. And all of this signage was scattered. The billboards were Fidel Castro saying, everything's great and wonderful, in the meantime, all of the people were, uh, while we were there, there was a bread shortage. There wasn't enough bread for the people. And so, but never mind the fact that there's not enough bread for you. The dictator says everything's good, and so everything is good. And so the messaging and the propaganda is all about devotion and worship and attention, and will you give worship, devotion, and attention to the one who's declared to be the Son of God? And so Augustus, I think, is in the story because it's a placeholder for historical fact that Jesus existed in the first century world. 
And the reason why he ended up in Bethlehem is because of this decree. But at the same time, I think it's there so that we start comparing and contrasting who the true Son of God is. And if we jump into our text, it's Luke one thirty one. It says, uh, it says there, uh, we'll jump in at 29. Mary was greatly t- troubled at the words, wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And last week we explored the significance of Jesus being uh, his name meaning Savior, the Lord saves, and how Jesus rescues us from our sins, and how Jesus is the true Savior of the world to deliver us from sin and death. And then we look at verse 32, and this is our kind of our launching pad for this morning's message. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Next week, we'll look at the kingdom that Jesus declares, but this week, I'd like to show you how we understand Jesus to truly be the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, and that there's evidence throughout Scripture that the rest of this story is about comparing and understanding who the real true Son of God is and why that matters for the world. You know, uh, Augustus may have thought himself um, arrogantly. He may have thought himself uh, so significant to be a sort of deified figure in the world that he can, with the writing of his pen and a swift move, upend families and send them in diversions. And what story Luke is telling is, is that Augustus in all of his great mighty power is merely a pawn in the figure of God's great plan in which he is using this decree to fulfill Micah's prophecy that uh, that, Jesus, uh, that there would be a Savior born in the town of Bethlehem. You know, the mighty, powerful figures of the world, they can start orchestrating all of their plans and all of their controlling ideas, and what God is doing in this small little moment is showing himself that who has the true mighty power, and it is the power of God. It is Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. He will be called Son of the Most High. We get uh, very early on in the Gospel of Luke at Jesus' baptism. And that when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open up and it says, there's this voice that declares, this is my Son whom I am well pleased. And so right uh, sort of from the very get-go, there is this message and assurance that this promise that was given to Mary, that he will be known as the Son of the Most High, there's already this sort of message and encouragement that God is reaching through and piercing through and doing things that he doesn't normally do every day. And it's like, this is my Son, whom I love, and am well pleased. Immediately after that, Jesus is taken into the wilderness to be tempted. In Luke chapter 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are what? If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, "Is It, writ- is, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. 
The devil led him up to a high place, and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then in Luke 4, 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. There is an excellent book on Christian leadership called In the Name of Jesus, written by Henry Nowen. And it is an outline of the temptations here uh, that go before Christ. And he uses that as a sort of template to say, here are the temptations of Christian leadership. And the temptations are to be spectacular, to be relevant, and to be powerful. And the temptations that are before Jesus, they question his identity. And in the questioning of his identity as the true son of God, it's will he trust in his own power, in his own strength? Will he choose power and control? Will he choose being spectacular? Will he be one that is focused on himself? Will he take the shortcuts? He's being offered all the kingdoms of the world. He says, all of this will be yours if you will just compromise your worship. Will you give me the worship and I'll give you all of this? Bypass the cross, bypass suffering, and have all that I have planned for you. From the very get-go, Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Not very long after this, the demons start saying, Hey, uh, Son of God, what are you going to do with this? And so it's possible... It's possible to declare Jesus to be the Son of God and not give your allegiance and devotion. And Satan and his minions, you know, the little yellow guys, they give they give their recognition but they don't give their hearts, they don't give their devotion. They realize his power and his significance. They recognize what they're dealing with. There are others who will recognize what they're dealing with. And it's, uh, it's uh, when we look at, uh, well, let's look at, just stay in Luke 4, and you can see the demon conversation. If we jump down... Um, so Jesus, he goes to the temple after uh, later in Luke 4, and he goes and he proclaims uh, the freedom uh, and that those will be anointed and blessed and that he's going to set prisoners free and restore sight to the blind. He says it's fulfilled in your hearing. And then he tracks down, if you jump down to uh, the people in the synagogue, they're getting mad at him in verse 28. And then if we uh, look then at 431, then he went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon and an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, 
Go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them and all came out, within, came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are with authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out and news spread throughout the surrounding area. The demons are recognizing Jesus as the Son of God, that he's the Holy One of God. If you jump down to verse 40, at sunset the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, laying his hands on each of them, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the other towns also because that's why I was sent. Um, I'm going to get into that passage next week. Uh, because Jesus came to proclaim his kingdom. But as the Son of God, being known as the one who is most holy, the Holy One of God, who is Son of the Lord Almighty, this is all lofty language to say, I think, in a culture that deifies things that we really shouldn't, that there is one true Lord and King, there is one true Son of God, and it's Jesus Christ. There's a conversation uh, at the end, uh, of the gospel in Luke chapter 22. In 2270, Jesus uh, has been brought before, or he's not yet brought before Pilate and Herod. Uh, in verse 66, Luke 2266, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I, if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. And so there we kind of get three, we get kind of three things, but they're all talking about the same thing. They said, so are you the Messiah? Are you the son of man? Or are you the son of God? And all three, it's kind of confusing. All three mean the same thing, but at the same time they don't. But what Jesus is doing is he's bridging, he's bridging the, uh, this idea of the suffering servant. He's bridging the idea of the son of man who is going to right, uh, right the wrongs for Israel spoken of in Daniel and Ezekiel, he is going to be the one who is truly the Son of God. So the question, the question that the first century world would be asking is, I think, who do we give our allegiance and devotion to? Who do we give, who do we give our hearts to? Who do we give our concerns to? Where do we turn when things aren't going right? When we look at Jesus as the Son of God, it can be something that we just sort of, yeah, he's the Son. 
But do we fully appreciate what's being declared when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the rescuer of sins, the one who is truly the heir to the kingdom of God, the one who truly and righteously is chosen? Do we give a full appreciation for what Christ has done and who he is? And so Luke, I think, is comparing and contrasting kingdoms and the things that we're committed to. And when we look at our lives and we just take a moment to pause and we think about where are my commitments, what am I committed to, am I more in love with this world and the things of the world or do I love the one who created it? Are my commitments... are my commitments to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so when we kind of pull it all back, when we pull it all back and we look at it and we say, okay, Jesus is the Son of God. Even the demons recognize it. Do I believe and do I give him what he deserves? And I think that at the end of the day, that when you know that Jesus is the Son of God, what the response is, is worship and devotion. And if you're like me, I think that every once in a while we need the reminder of what we are called to worship, who we are called to worship, and why we worship Him. That it needs to be an examination of our heart to say, do I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That we reestablish that commitment of our good confession. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's my Lord and Savior. Do you revisit the confession you've made about who he is and his identity? Because just as Satan sort of twists and turns the sort of and wants to cause like this sort of rift in his identity to say, are you really the son of God? Would, God, would, would the son of God really endure this? Shouldn't he be able to bypass this? Well, when I find myself in the temptation of a world that would cause me to forget my identity as a child of God, I would think that, you know, maybe I should treat myself to this, or I deserve this, or I shouldn't have to suffer, I shouldn't have to go through hardship, I shouldn't have any of these difficulties, I should be able to do what I want, I should be able to live my truth, I should be able to do whatever it is I, I please to do. I need to pull it all back. I'm a child of God, a servant of God, I'm a worshiper of God, I'm a worshiper of Jesus Christ. I belong to Him. And so, also within, the, within this, and this just jumped out in my studies, I really like N.T. Wright. It's this kind of this reminder. Mary is the supreme example of what always happens when God is at work by grace through human beings. God's power from outside and the indwelling spirit within together result in things being done which would have been unthinkable any other way. Within all of this is this sort of comforting reminder that God is doing great things with people who decide to be the servants of God. Will you serve the Son of God? Will you worship and devotion uh, be devoted to Him? Uh, there's, a, there's been a video floating around uh, the internet. I must have watched this video 20 times. Um, just sharing it with people, and maybe you've seen it. 
So this young man's name is Milo. And Milo gets in the van and he tells his mom, he's British, that he, uh, he's got a special task for the child's uh, nativity story. And if you haven't watched it yet, uh, just prepare to be amazed. I, I love the kid. And uh, one, I think the accent sells it. Um, but, uh, but to be a door holder in the story. Uh, we can focus on, I think, Augustus and his power and his majesty. And I think we can live in a world where celebrity gets our attention. And power gets our attention, and politics get our attention, and money gets our attention, and all of these things. And little Milo comes through, and he pierces to our hearts, and he says, I'm delighted to be in a star role in the story of God. I get to be a door holder. And it's not like the number one door holder. (laughs) It's, It's door holder number three. And his delight, and it's like, get in there! And it's, it's perfect, and it's magical. It's this piercing through our pride and our ego that if we could be more childlike and have the innocence of saying, Jesus is the Son of God, and I have the star role of being one who belongs to him. I have the star role to be a servant in his kingdom. I have the star role of holding doors for the elderly. I have the star role of of washing feet. I have the star role of giving to the poor. I have the star role of being the hands and feet of Christ in this world. What does it mean for us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but to fall on our knees in worship and devotion and service? So get in there as door holders number 50 and 70 and and may we get in line to be a part of telling this story of a Savior who came to rescue and save, who is truly the
the Lord God Almighty and the Son of the Most High. And we have our place in Him. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And we're pride and ego and sin and money and power and influence where all of those messages pierce through and weigh heavy on our hearts and steal worship and devotion to you. God, where we feel pressure and anxiety and brokenness, where we face our sins, God, may we... May we hear this morning that Jesus is the Son of God. That He rescued us from sin and death and reconciled us to You. That He is the Son of the Lord Most High. And we may, may we make much of You in all that we do and bring glory and honor and praise to you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you'd stand, please. I'd like to close with a reading of Scripture. Not in the Gospel of Luke, but in Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, And he's the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The Christ is the firstborn over all creation. He is first place in all things. He is the supreme Son of the Most High. Let's continue our worship. Let's worship in response. <laughs> 